Hey guys, welcome to Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. I'm Dr. John Berardi, co-founder of Precision Nutrition, and if you're not familiar with us, over the last 15 years, we've become the world's largest online nutrition, fitness, and health coaching company. Through that time, as you can imagine, we've watched fad diets and fitness crazes come and go. But when the fads have failed and the crazes died out and people just want something that works, they turn to Precision Nutrition for things like expert coaching, guided mentorship, and online support. In this podcast, which is a mix of recorded articles, interviews, and roundtable discussions, myself and my Precision Nutrition colleagues will help make the whole nutrition, fitness, and health process work for you. Ideally, you'll discover that eating, moving, and living well can be easy and enjoyable for now and into the future. So let's get started. Hi, this is Bryce from Precision Nutrition, and today I'm reading the article, 25 Plus Nutrition and Lifestyle Strategies to Lower Your Risk of Alzheimer's Disease, plus an Alzheimer's Prevention Quiz to See How You're Doing, by Ryan Andrews and Krista Scott-Dixon. Worried about Alzheimer's disease and neurodegeneration? There are many things we can't control when it comes to cognitive decline, but certain nutrition and lifestyle choices may help to lower our risk. Here's how to stack the deck in your brain's favor. A few years ago, I was playing a game with my family. The question came up, which illness do you never want to have? Yeah, that's right. Apparently my family plays dreary games. Each person around the table said, Alzheimer's disease. Then the conversation turned to how inevitable this illness seemed, and the mood, well, became quite bleak. And this made me stop and think. Most of us believe, to some degree, we can take steps to prevent heart disease, diabetes, and stroke. Yet, unlike these, many of us feel like getting Alzheimer's is pure genetic luck, or doom, depending on your circumstances. Is this accurate? Can we do anything in our daily life that might help prevent the onset of Alzheimer's disease and cognitive decline? Well, in today's article, we'll explore this question, and in particular, we'll address what Alzheimer's disease is, what factors contribute to Alzheimer's and neurodegeneration, and what factors may help us prevent Alzheimer's, and what you can do to protect your own brain or help clients or loved ones avoid the disease too. Now, online in today's article, we've also included an Alzheimer's prevention quiz to find out how well you're stacking the deck in your brain's favor. Make sure to check it out at precisionnutrition.com forward slash prevent dash Alzheimer's dash and dash neurodegenerative dash disease. Now, in the end, it's great that you're listening to this article because we all have good reason to be worried about Alzheimer's disease. And to be fair, my family wasn't being unusually morbid or paranoid. Deaths from Alzheimer's increased 89% between 2000 and 2014. That might not sound too remarkable until you compare it to the 21% and 14% decrease in stroke and heart disease deaths during that same period. This now makes Alzheimer's the sixth leading cause of death in the U.S., with a cost of care now equal to or exceeding cardiovascular disease or cancer. In fact, we have a chart online in today's article that can show you these comparisons. Make sure to check it out. But let's go back to the start. What is Alzheimer's disease? Well, if you've had someone in your family affected by Alzheimer's, maybe it appeared subtly. At first, maybe your mom was a little less steady on her feet or sometimes forgot words for things. Maybe your grandfather got more irritable or seemed more rigid about household rules. Maybe your aunt joked about being absent-minded 
perhaps to cover up some puzzling behaviors. And later, well, maybe it got worse. Maybe a close relative no longer recognized you or knew what day or what year it was. Maybe someone's personality changed completely. Perhaps they went from a gentle teddy bear to a raging grizzly. And maybe somebody got lost and scared in their own driveway or their own neighborhood or went wandering to a place where something used to be 30 years ago. And maybe someone with a second language forgot it and regressed to speaking only the language they first learned as a child. You see, sometimes this process of neurodegeneration is fast, and sometimes it's slow, perhaps up to 20 years between the first symptoms and significant impairment. And this process can also range from mild to severe. For example, with mild, people might have trouble with short-term memory like names of people they just met or forgetting something they just read, not being able to remember where they put a set of keys, and so forth. Otherwise, they can take care of themselves and function pretty well. Then there's moderate. People might need help with daily tasks, since now they're having real trouble with long-term memory, daily self-care, and concentrating. They might forget important details about their personal histories, like where they live. They might not always know what day it is or where they live. And they might also have problems with other brain processes like sleep, and they might feel more fearful or angry or have other major emotional and personality changes. And lastly, there's advanced. At this phase, people need full-time care. Though they may have occasional moments of clarity, they generally aren't very aware of their surroundings, able to communicate clearly, or do most physical tasks. So given all the possible manifestations of neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's, it's understandably scary. Now at the most basic level, Alzheimer's damages neurons in the brain. Brain cells, after all, more or less make us who we are and enable us to do all the activities of life. You can imagine the damage to these cells can affect a wide range of processes, including remembering, recognizing, recalling, both short-term and long-term, speaking and writing, making decisions and solving problems, interpreting sensory input, and finding our way around and navigating the world. With enough damage to neurons, we also may die. We aren't yet completely sure why and how the neurons get damaged, though. The most common working hypothesis right now is that, essentially, protein-based gunk builds up in and around the brain cells, sort of like clothing fibers and cat hair clogging up your dryer lint filter. More specifically, beta-amyloid plaques build up outside of the neurons. Tangles of other protein fibers can build up inside of neurons. This accumulation of neurological protein gunk can interfere with neuron-to-neuron communication as well as nutrient transport and the transport of other essential compounds like neurotransmitters. The neurons that first become damaged are often in regions of the brain that shape new, short-term memories. Then the damage proceeds to areas that control long-term memory. But are beta amyloid plaques to blame, or are they just byproducts of another process? Well, clinical trials using medications to suppress beta amyloid synthesis haven't been encouraging so far. Thus, some researchers speculate that our bodies may synthesize beta-amyloid plaques as a protective mechanism when lipid supply is low and neuron metabolism is overly dependent upon glucose. In other words, beta-amyloid plaques may be an effect rather than a direct cause of Alzheimer's. As with most chronic diseases, it's probably a complex collection of factors. Other contributing elements may include the following. Misfiring neurons. When the neurons might be structurally okay, but the chemical information flow from neuron to neuron isn't working. Then there's uncontrolled inflammation. 
This is when inflammation goes wild, and instead of being helpful, it just damages structures in the brain. And then there's thinning of gray matter. That's when brain tissue that's particularly full of nerve cells decreases. And then there's generalized brain atrophy. Most people know that it's possible to lose muscle mass, which can lead to decreases in strength and function. This can also happen to our brain mass. Now, many risk factors for Alzheimer's are outside of our control. Getting older is our main risk factor. And with people generally living longer, prevalence of Alzheimer's is expected to quadruple by 2050, meaning one in every 85 people will be affected. Around 5.5 million people are known to be living with Alzheimer's in the U.S. right now. Most are over 65. But there may be more, since Alzheimer's is often underdiagnosed and or underreported. Getting diagnosed with Alzheimer's before age 65 is rare, and it seems to happen only to a very small percentage of people, like 2-5% of all cases, with particular genetic mutations. While Alzheimer's is more common with advanced age, it's also not guaranteed, and it's not a quote-unquote normal part of aging. And yes, women get Alzheimer's more often than men. For instance, in the US, two-thirds of people with Alzheimer's are women. Now, this might simply be due to women living longer. And also consider that if a man makes it to age 65, this means he hasn't died of a cardiovascular condition, which means he probably has above-average cardiovascular health, which would decrease his chances of Alzheimer's. And we'll talk more about the interaction between Alzheimer's and vascular health in a moment. Sex hormones such as testosterone, estrogen, and progesterone have complex effects on the brain. Endogenous sex hormones, in other words, the hormones we naturally produce, may protect against cognitive decline. For instance, the estrogens that most women's ovaries secrete before menopause can help brain cells and structures grow, stay healthy, and transmit signals, and it can also help prevent cell death. Yet, some evidence suggests that supplemental hormones, such as postmenopausal hormone replacement therapy in women, usually with conjugated estrogens with progestins, may increase dementia risk along with other cardiovascular disease risks. Now, the data here is still unclear and outcomes may depend on other factors like age or the exact type of hormone supplemented. Now in men, age-related hormonal changes as well as treatments such as androgen blocking therapy, for instance to treat prostate cancer, can also affect cognitive function. And yes, genetics do play a role. Genetics and epigenetics are complex, but researchers have identified some key genetic variations that may contribute to one's risk of Alzheimer's at least in certain populations. We know that Alzheimer's tends to run in families, which hints at a genetic link, and genetic variations of this type often cluster within a closely related population, which means that someone's ethnicity and ancestry may also be a factor. More on that in a moment. Now, one of the known genetic risk factors in developing Alzheimer's disease is a variant on the APOE gene, which codes for the protein apolipoprotein E, a cholesterol carrier found in the brain and elsewhere in the body. Apolipoproteins help shuttle cholesterol and lipids from the liver to the rest of the body. Cholesterol and lipids are abundant in the brain and cerebrospinal fluid, CSF. People with Alzheimer's might lack certain lipids and or cholesterol in their CSF. Having enough of these compounds around in the brain is important for general brain health, neurotransmission, and could offer protection against other problematic substances. Thus, variations in apolipoproteins might affect the delivery mechanisms. The APOE epsilon 4 gene variant is a major risk factor for Alzheimer's in many populations, and this risk 
seems to include people of European, African, and East Asian descent. Having one copy of APOE Epsilon 4 leads to a three times greater risk of developing Alzheimer's. Having two copies means an eight to 12 times greater risk. Now keep in mind that carrying APOE Epsilon 4 doesn't mean someone is guaranteed to get Alzheimer's. Some people with it don't get Alzheimer's and some people without it do get Alzheimer's. After all, genetics is about probabilities, not absolutes. Many biological phenomena work together in ways we can't predict. Researchers speculate that having these and other genetic risk factors may affect about one-third of the formula for how our brains change with age. For instance, having a female relative, such as a mother, with Alzheimer's seems to increase risk more than a male relative. Having other genetic risk factors, such as having Down syndrome, may also predispose people to neurodegeneration. In fact, 30% of those with Down syndrome in their 50s have dementia. This might be due to a genetic difference that leads to a greater buildup of plaques and tangles in the brain at an earlier age. The other two-thirds of non-genetic factors might, to some degree, be up to us in our environments. And an important caution here. Right now, we can test for the APOE4 gene, as well as other genetic factors, but we can't say for sure whether having this gene truly predicts whether you'll get Alzheimer's. So be careful with these and any other genetic data that you get about yourself. Okay, ethnicity is another risk factor. Our ethnicity and ancestry reflect potential clusters of genetic tendencies as well as other socioeconomic factors. For instance, in the United States, people of African-American and or Hispanic descent seem to get Alzheimer's more than people of white European descent. In Australia, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders are diagnosed at rates three to five times higher than non-Aboriginal population. In studies done in Singapore in a multi-ethnic population, people with Chinese ancestry had lower rates of dementia than ethnic Malays or Indians. South Korea has over twice the rate of dementia diagnoses compared to the rest of East Asia. And 20% of people over 65 in Israel will eventually be diagnosed with Alzheimer's, potentially reflecting risk factors within various ethnically Jewish populations. And Scandinavian countries have the highest death rates from Alzheimer's, ranging from around 30% for Denmark to 54% for Finland, perhaps because people there generally live longer and so are more likely to end up with age-linked diseases, or perhaps because of some other genetic factors in Northern Europeans. Ethnic Finns, for instance, have higher rates of cardiovascular disease as well. So given these diverse populations, our risk for Alzheimer's probably isn't just about genetic ancestry. Health is, in part, also socially determined. As with other chronic diseases, there are probably other social and economic factors that contribute to health, such as social inequality, poverty, language barriers, lack of public health resources for specific populations, being able to afford medical care, and so forth. For instance, across Europe, there are significant differences in how quickly people receive care after first noticing symptoms. In Germany, you might get treatment within a year. In the UK, you might wait three years. In Latin America, Colombia has a dementia diagnosis rate of about 2 to 4%. Its neighbor Venezuela has a rate of 8 to 13%. And another neighbor Brazil has around 5%. Its southern cousin Argentina has 12%. People of African ancestry living in the United States get Alzheimer's at much higher rates than populations of Africans living in Africa. And speaking of nationality, there's evidence that people who speak more than one language get Alzheimer's less, 
regardless of ethnicity. So, yeah, it's complex, like all chronic diseases. And of course, there's another risk factor, head trauma. (laughs) Also not good. It should be intuitively obvious that taking damage to your head isn't great for your brain. Some types of head trauma, like sports-related concussions, are, or should be, relatively preventable. Other types, such as accidents or combat injuries, are less so. Many veterans, for instance, are grappling with the long-term effects of traumatic brain injury, or TBI. Yes, we can't ditch our genetics, our parents, or time. We may not be able to move to some imaginary, affluent, egalitarian society with a perfect healthcare system. And as expected, brain health and deterioration is influenced by many factors outside of our control, including trauma we've experienced, air we've breathed, crayons we may have eaten, and so forth. Nevertheless, there are some factors we can control. Some you can control a lot, some only a little, but all can be changed even if only slightly. Now, instead of just giving you a long list of these factors, though, we've created an Alzheimer's prevention quiz. You can use this quiz to take stock of the things you can influence in your own life to help reduce your risk for Alzheimer's and neurodegeneration. Now, note, this quiz isn't about right or wrong. It's about understanding the things you're already doing and the things you could do or do more of to support your brain health and stack the deck in favor of avoiding Alzheimer's. As I mentioned at the start of this article, you can do that quiz online at precisionnutrition.com forward slash prevent dash Alzheimer's dash and dash neurodegenerative dash disease. Make sure to check it out. You'll be doing your brain a big favor. All right, aside from the quiz, what should you do next? Well, here are some tips from us at Precision Nutrition. Beginning with start today. Once Alzheimer's has progressed and neurons have been damaged or destroyed, it can't really be reversed. However, most of us can take steps now to protect our brains and help lower our risk of neurodegenerative disease. And recognize that this is a complex phenomenon. There are many factors that go into developing Alzheimer's. It's not as simple as having the wrong genes or eating the right foods. As well, recognize that your brain is part of your body. (laughs) Yes, physical health includes brain health. Anything you do to improve your physical health will probably benefit your brain. That includes not smoking, drinking in moderation, getting your colorful fruits and veggies, getting enough lean protein, getting enough healthy fats, eating as wide a variety of foods as possible, getting regular exercise, managing your stress, and being careful about chemical exposure. It's also important to recognize that brain health is also about emotional and psychological health. Having social support and rewarding relationships, pursuing learning and growth, having a purpose in life, all of these are part of an overall wellness plan and crucial for brain health as well. And of course, if you learn, challenge yourself. We often tend to repeat what we know. For instance, we might have done crossword puzzles for a few decades. It might feel hard, but you're not actually learning. The same is true of many types of brain games whose usefulness isn't fully supported by evidence. For neuroplasticity to occur and us to groove new brain pathways, we have to be truly challenged, perhaps even uncomfortable, during the learning process. In particular, consider a new form of movement, a new language, and or a new hands-on skill. All of these require you to integrate thinking, learning, verbal and nonverbal skills, visual and other sensory inputs, and kinesthetic movement-based information. And yes, provided you've done your quiz, you can use the answers as data. 
What's going well? What health habits do you already have locked down? And which health habits might you like to improve? And don't beat yourself up for getting a score that isn't as high as you'd like, and don't try to be perfect. Instead, consider using the data to set some realistic, manageable long-term goals for changing your behaviors and habits. As well, before you look for supplements or special solutions, get the basics in place first. Yes, some supplements are promising. Yes, some superfoods may seem exciting. And if you truly like goji berries or turmeric lattes, enjoy them. But in reality, your brain will probably be much happier about getting eight solid hours of sleep every night than some magical bean from the Amazon rainforest. And lastly, get help if you need it. If your quiz answers revealed that you might need some extra support making healthy changes, such as getting to a healthy body weight, improving your regular exercise habits, and or choosing foods that add value to your body, consider finding a good coach. All right, this has been Bryce from Precision Nutrition reading today's article, 25 Plus Nutrition and Lifestyle Strategies to Lower Your Risk of Alzheimer's Disease, plus an Alzheimer's Prevention Quiz to See How You're Doing by Ryan Andrews and Krista Scott Dixon. You can read the article online yourself, plus do the quiz at precisionnutrition.com forward slash prevent dash Alzheimer's dash and dash neurodegenerative dash disease. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Okay, everyone, that's it for this week's edition of Precision Nutrition's Eat, Move, and Live Better podcast. For more information about how to eat, move, and live better yourself, and for some awesome free nutrition and health resources, come visit us on the web at www.precisionnutrition.com. You could also visit us on Facebook or on Twitter at InsidePN. Talk to you next time.